Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. What is the message we proclaim and what is the community of which we are a part? What is the message we proclaim and what is the community of which we are a part? I'm asking what is the gospel and what is the church? Seems pretty basic to me. It's Stephen Covey who gets credit mostly for saying the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We don't really know who said it first. It was probably somebody before him, but anyway, he gets the credit. But the main thing being the main thing is a very difficult thing to keep the main thing. I live in Somerville. You may know that it has the largest high school in the state of South Carolina. It also has a very good football team. You may know that too. We used to have a coach called John McKissick who's quite famous not only in this state but throughout the whole country because of the success of his coaching career. If you go to Somerville in August, you will find the football team doing what are called two-a-days very early before the season starts. If you go to a two-a-day, you will find them doing things like this. This is a football. This is how to carry the football. Do not drop the football. Why do they do things like that? This is a tackle. This is how you tackle. Why do they do things like that? Because when you're in the sixth game of the season, if you don't have the football in your hands, you can't score. It's really important, but it's very hard to do. My hero, C.S. Lewis, has so many things about him that are so admirable, but one of my favorites is he has what I like to call an instinct for the center. He's always somehow keeping his eye on the main thing and making sure that it has the proper emphasis. So let's do the same. All right, two questions. You're going to need two texts. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, first of all, what is the message we proclaim? It's right there in the second verse as Paul approaches this community which is so troubled. Troubled about him and he's troubled about them. And when you're dealing with conflict and difficulty, you really have to make sure that the main thing is the main thing. And Paul says it there, and I don't want you to miss it in the second verse. For I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. There it is, my preaching hero, Charles Simeon's favorite verse. I decided... I purposed, I made sure to make the main thing, not just Jesus, but a particular kind of Jesus, a particular focus on Jesus, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He will say in Galatians, I glory in nothing but the cross of Christ, for I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. In the first chapter, he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He calls the message of the gospel, did you catch it? The word of the cross. Now, why in the world am I talking about the importance of the cross? It's everywhere. Everybody knows it's important. We confess it in the creed every week, right? Later, you're going to say in the service, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why do we say that every week? Because we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And here's a newsflash, brothers and sisters. There are many Christs on offer. Many. And the Christ that the Corinthians are worshiping has got some parts of it that are off. 
Jesus Christ, the ancient Near Eastern rabbi. Jesus Christ, the hippie countercultural wanderer. Jesus Christ, the liberating revolutionary. Jesus Christ, the great moral teacher. Jesus Christ, the great love and sacrifice example of all examples. And on and on and on it can go. It makes me think of Albert Schweitzer's comment about all the Jesus scholarship. He said, all these scholars have looked at the New Testament as if they're looking down a well, and all they've seen is their own reflection. It's funny how all these Jesuses have all the biases of the very people who are preaching about them. And can I just remind you as we go flying by that I'm not just talking about the world, I'm talking about the church. Yes, in the church, you get a more difficult situation in some senses because they're supposed to talk about Jesus. They're supposed to talk about the Christ, but they don't. In many cases, they don't at all. So H. Richard Niebuhr, in his great summary of American Protestant mainline theology, you know what I'm talking about, right? We're talking Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, says, and I quote, a God without wrath brought men and women without sin into a world without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's his summary of the the theology of so many mainline churches to this very moment. Did you notice the last statement? Through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Paul's not going to make that mistake. No way is Paul going to make that mistake. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's got to be the biblical Christ. It's got to be the New Testament Christ. And the New Testament Christ is the crucified Christ. Michelangelo, you may know, painted a great picture of the crucifixion. You may not know the story behind it, but apparently he blindfolded himself, and it is said that he listened to the Gospels over and over and over again, read with himself blindfolded, until he said he was imbued with the spirit of the narrative. Then he took off the blindfold, he took up his palette and his brush, and he did the work one of many works which made his name nearly immortal even down to this day. It was the thought and the sight of the cross that inspired him, and it was the biblical cross and the biblical Christ that he portrayed. So two stories about the importance of the cross, one from church history and one from European history as we fly by. I really like this one from church history. It's about St. Martin, so we're way back And it's a legend about St. Martin, and it goes like this. One day he's engaged in his sacred studies, and there's a knock at the door. And a stranger of lordly look and princely attire is there. Who art thou? asked Martin. I am Christ, said the person. The confident bearing and the commanding tone of the visitor would have overawed nearly everybody. But Martin gave his visitor a look up and down carefully, And then quickly asked this, where is the print of the nails? He had noticed that this indubitable mark of Christ's person was not there. There were no scarred hands. There were no scarred feet. Confused by the test question and his base deception exposed, the prince of evil, for that's who it was, quickly fled. Of course, only a legend, but it suggests the one infallible test that should be applied in all truth in life. There are so many who claim to preach Christ, but those who would lay aside the cross of Christ fail the test. 
Where is the print of the nails is the question. It is the test of every single theology. Fitzallison's way of saying it was, Kendall, can you smell the blood? He actually used to ask me that. Can you smell the blood? You do know that in right one in the prayer book, it actually says, through faith in his blood. At the center of our faith is a bloody mess. And if you don't center on the cross and the blood of Christ, you're off base from the beginning. And if you miss the bottom button of the coat, everything thereafter, even though it's properly buttoned, is out of kilter. The European history story is from Poland. We're back in the 80s, so we're in the period of time before the fall of the Berlin Wall. We're in communist Poland, and you may not be surprised to know that they didn't like crosses. And the person who took over, if I get to my story here, I have to, I have to work at pronouncing his name because it's Polish and I'm not very good at it. Prime Minister Zieralewski ordered all the crosses removed from classroom walls after he got elected, and he banned them in factories, hospitals, and other public institutions. And just, just think about that. The prime, it's pretty powerful. The prime minister of the whole country banning all these crosses. It's a Catholic country, you know that, so the Catholic bishops pitched a fit. They attacked the ban, which stirred waves of anger and resentment all across Poland. Ultimately, the government relented, insisting that the law remain on the books, but agreeing not to press for the removal of crucifixes, particularly in schoolrooms. However, one very zealous communist school administrator in Gerwalin, Poland, decided that the law was a law. So one evening, he had seven large crucifixes removed from the lecture halls where they had hung since the school's founding in the 1920s. Days later, a group of parents entered the school and hung more crosses in their place. The administration promptly had those taken down as well. The next day, two-thirds of the school's 600 students staged a sit-in. When heavily armed police arrived, the students were forced into the streets. Then they marched, crucifixes held high, to a nearby church where they were joined, are you ready, by 2,500 other students from nearby schools for morning prayer in support of the protest. Soldiers surrounded the church, but the pictures from inside were of students holding crosses high above their heads, and they flashed around the world. Oh, by the way, there was a priest there that preached a sermon that day, and its title was, and I quote, there is no Poland without a cross. Do you actually think anybody forgot that? That's it in one story. You can do, you can do whatever you want with Jesus, just get the cross out of there. That's, what, that's, that's the satanic impulse. And the Catholic Church and the faithful Christians say, not in your life. There is no Poland without a cross. There is no church without a cross. There is no gospel without a cross. Are we all together? It's in the prayer book for a reason. Do you smell the blood? Are you centered in the center? Do you know the crucified Lord? First question. Second question, what is the nature of the church? Now I want you to turn over to the gospel. Fantastic stuff, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. And what's so great about this sermon is how direct Jesus is in his teaching. You are like, nope, not what it says, did you notice? You are, he says, you are. This is who you are as Christian people. This is who you are. This is who you are. And what does it say? Two things, very simple, 
both metaphors, both powerful, both significant. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is the nature of the community of which we are a part. Now, first salt, it is distinctive, it is used for flavoring, and it is used for preserving. Every single dimension of it matters. John Stott, in his comments on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, what is the one overriding theme of the whole sermon? Christians are different. Jesus emphasized that his true followers, the citizens of God's kingdom, were to be entirely different from others. They were not to take their cue from the people around them, but from him, and so proved to be genuine children of their heavenly father. To me, the key text of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6, 8. Do not be like them. It is immediately reminiscent of God's word in Leviticus 18. You must not do as they do. It is the same call to be different. And right through the whole Sermon on the Mount, this theme is elaborated. So first of all, distinct, different. There's meat which doesn't have salt, and there's meat which does have salt. And in the ancient Near East, never the two shall meet. They're totally different things. Even in Job, of all things, I didn't remember this, he says this, can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Chapter 6, verse 6, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? Even Job in his day knew the importance of salt. It just doesn't taste the same. So there's a distinctiveness, but there's also a flavoring that goes with it. It is a powerful impact that the church is supposed to have. If there's salt, then it tastes different and the flavor is brought out. And finally, it preserves. And this is something that we've really lost sight of in modern history, but if you go back, you may know about ice houses and things like that, but you may know about salt being rubbed down on meat as a means of preserving the meat from decaying. It was everywhere, meat and fish. It was the only way to preserve it. Seafarers, even down to a century ago, would salt down their fish and meat to preserve them for, for transatlantic journeys. Salt was so important as a preventative corrupter in the ancient world that wars were literally fought over it and entire economies were based on it. In short, salt could literally make the difference between life and death when fresh food was not available. Sinclair Ferguson writing about this says this, this calls for a radical and costly application. Christians whose lives exhibit the qualities of the blessed will have a preserving impact upon society that if left to itself, will rot and deteriorate. Without the influence of the gospel on society, society will suffer moral decay and become putrid, unfit for the consumption of good men and women. Listen, it is all too easy for us to despair as Christians because of our apparent frailty and insignificance, personally or numerically. However, we must never give in to Satan's lie that we can only be effective when we have large numbers and a show of strength. Jesus' illustration of salt is an encouraging reminder that the apparently cheap and insignificant can influence its environment out of all proportion to our expectation. That is brilliantly stated. So it is distinct, it is flavoring, and it is a preservative. We all together so far? Oh yes, and it's light. And that's totally loaded for bear too. It is a source of life. It is a source of clarity. It is a dispeller of darkness. You just get the sense of the radical Christian counterculture that Jesus envisions for his disciples. It's a whole new way of life. It's a whole new society. That's what Jesus expects for the church.
And here's the thing at the beginning of the 21st century, brothers and sisters, do we actually believe this as Christians? Do we believe that if we really are faithful to Christ and live the way he wants us to live, it'll make a difference? Or are we stuck believing Satan's lie that Ferguson was onto? Giving into the lie that we can only be effective if we have large numbers. So since it's just us and just one office and just one conversation and just one prayer, it doesn't matter. Please, please don't fall for that lie. One story about salt and light from church history. I will take you back to Russia. We're in Siberia. We're in the Gulag. We're in the 1950s. The person who features is named Boris Nikolaevich Kornfeld. He was a surgeon who worked in a hospital in the prisons of the former Soviet Union. He was not on staff of the prison. He was one of the prisoners. We don't know why. We just know that his family got in political trouble. And we've, again, lost so much uh, sight of this aspect of what life was like before the Iron Curtain. When I was 17, I had the privilege and honor of going uh, to Russia and Poland. I'll never forget it because the Iron Curtain was still up. It was a completely different world. One of the things you may not know about the Soviet Union at the time is that they have a regular uh, procedure called citizen's arrest. You or I can call the police on our neighbor. They're not paying their taxes. They're not collecting their garbage. They're not doing this. And when we pulled up to one of the hotels in the major city, we had uh, one person call the police on another person for a parking violation. Made a big impression on me. Did not make me feel safe. Did not like it. KGB was following us around, by the way. A bunch of high school students <laughs> somehow followed around by the KGB because they were that we could, we could do something they didn't want to do. Now, we don't know what crime he committed, but he was, he, was, he was a political prisoner in the Gulag, which was about as bad as it gets. But he was a doctor, so he had significant seniority because he had skills that they desperately needed. And he was a Jewish man who had a sense of theology and a kind of a quiet faith. And all of a sudden, one day, he met a Christian. And the only thing he said later about this Christian was, he was very quiet, he was very faithful, but he had this practice. He would randomly and quite unforgettably simply start reciting the Lord's Prayer. And Kornfeld would hear him in the night, in the halls, in the morning, and it just got under his skin and in his blood. And as he tells the story, what starts to happen to him is the more time he spends in the gulag, the more the incredible cruelty and injustice that he's reg regularly witnessing as a member of that community just does him in. The uh, the, the, the medical people, one of the things that they had to do in the gulag was to sign a form, and he was one of the ones who had to sign, saying, oh yes, this is prisoner so-and-so, please sign here, Dr. Blah. Uh, this person's totally physically well enough to be tortured unbearably. And he would have to sign. The guards would regularly steal the food from the prisoners, etc. It was, it was just full of corruption and cruelty and injustice as far as the eye could see. And he just got fed up. He got really mad. He got really mad at the guards. And one, of the day, one day, he's in the operating room doing this sort of fairly routine suture procedure on one of the guards' blood vessels. And as he says, he said, all of a sudden he found himself in his own heart so appalled by all of the violence and the treachery and the cruelty and the just frankly evil that he was witnessing that he said this. He said, I can, I can suture this in such a way this guy can bleed to death. I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden, he's just horrified by the fact that he's actually thinking this. And as he later said, he said, the first thing that rushed into his mind was that Christian prisoner 
and Lord's Prayer and this line, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he realized that that sin was his also. And he also needed forgiveness. And he also needed to repent. He had sin in his own life. It wasn't just out there. It was in here. And the Christian inmate who had witnessed to him was transferred to another prison, but Dr. Kornfeld became a Christian. Soon after he prayed a prayer asking for God's forgiveness and for Jesus to come into his life, he began to change the way that he functioned. He wouldn't sign those medical forms anymore. Because it was against his faith, it was absolutely appalling. And so the, the, the people that were in charge of the camp got more and more mad at him, and he was basically working on borrowed time. His life was in danger every single day. One day, as he's examining a patient who had been operated on for cancer of the intestines, he just all of a sudden realizes, I've got almost no time. I've got to tell somebody what happened to me. So he tells the tale, and as the patient will later say, he was so messed up on the operating table, he was kind of in and out of consciousness while Kornfeld is telling this whole story. He tells about faith in Jesus Christ. He tells about the difference God made in his life. And the only thing the patient remembers was the next morning, waking up and hearing this, the, the incredible sound of all these feet in the hall. And that night, while Dr. Kornfeld slept, someone crept up beside him and dealt him eight blows in the head with a plaster's mallet, and Boris Kornfeld was dead. And the orderlies carried the still broken body of the doctor out of the hospital ward. Now why in the world am I telling you that story? Because I still haven't told you who the patient was. You see, Dr. Kornfeld's testimony did not die. That patient pondered the doctor's last impassioned words, and as a result, he too became a Christian. He survived the concentration camp, he also went on to tell the world what he learned there. The patient's name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You see, you don't know about Boris Kornfeld, but you do know about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the most important Christians of the last hundred years. Tell me it doesn't make a difference that you're salt and light. Who cares about what a doctor says in some obscure gulag in the 50s in Siberia? But in the hands of God, it is literally something that can change history. That's what salt and light actually means. That's who Jesus calls us to be. So we all together, the gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and the church is salt and light. Now I go from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. Now this is st interesting stuff to think about, and I want you to stay on the, on the cross for just a second. And what I want to say about it is this. Sometimes, as Christians, we need to learn to be quiet and just bask in the Son of God's grace. <clears throat> Part of the message of the cross today has to be simply this. It is, after all, the annual meeting, so I'm on good ground talking about the basic stuff, right? But, but I think of the hymn, freely, freely you have received, freely, freely give. And that's the dynamic of the gospel. It's always God to us and then us to others on God's behalf. We are blessed to be a blessing. And the only way that works with the cross is if you learn the instinct to sit there at the foot of the cross and make sure that that is the basis on which you know that God loves you. I never tire of saying Augustine's great insight. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. It's an awesome insight, just awesome. 
Can you? God loves everybody as if there were only one body. But he loves everybody that way. And how do we know that? Because he sent his son to die in their place. We were so terrible that God had to die for us, and God is so good that he wanted to die for us. That's the gospel. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die, as the hymn has it. So Friday was Golden Retriever Day. I bet you didn't know. I didn't know either. But we have a golden retriever, first one we've ever had. And he is the highlight of our life. He is the means by which we have survived the pandemic. Thank God for that dog. I can't even imagine where we'd be without that dog. Now, I don't know how much you know about animals and how they function in your household if you have them, but for some reason, animals have a particular member of the family that they tend to glom onto as their particular favorite. We used to have a toy Maltese who was somehow, I was his favorite, and he, at the end of his life, he literally followed me everywhere around the house, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, literally, the, it, was, it became a joke for my children. I'd go to the loo, the dog would go to the loo. I'd go back to my office, the dog would be under my desk at the office. Well, for whatever reason, this golden retriever is glommed onto my wife. I mean, when I get home, he's excited. When she gets home, he almost wets the floor. It's just ridiculous. Okay, so, and th- this is, I'm telling, this is, as God is my witness, this is one of the things, his, one of his favorite things to do is he just puts, he literally does this. He puts his head in her lap and he just looks up at her face and he he just stays there. He just did this last night. It's a little surreal. It's just really powerful. And, And it's because he wants that look of love. And that's what I want from you. That's what, that's what I'm after. I want you to have that instinct. I want you to just bask in the How do you know that you're loved by God? How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're fine, not simply for this life, but for all of life and for the life to come? Because of the cross. Bask in the love of God on the cross. God loves every one of us as if there were only one of us. Are we all together? Now, on this second point, I really need to go from preaching to meddling and I want to go after it in two senses. The first sense is this. I want to say something. I have to be careful because I'm getting ready to wander because I'm getting all charged up, and I have to be careful because I only have... I have to to stay near the mics. Kendall, stay near the mic. But but I, I, I want to say something about the implications of this in terms of our thinking. If Jesus is right, and I want to argue that he is, that the church is salt and light, it has a massively important implication for how we think about culture and the church in the West at the beginning of the 21st century. And the way I want to go about it is this. We live in a time of widespread moral and spiritual confusion, and it doesn't take a great deal of insight in order to understand that. Our society is not healthy. It's sick. We could go on all morning about this. We don't know what a man is. We don't know what a woman is. We don't know what health is. Our culture has literally lost its mind. If you just read the blog headlines on my blog alone in the last couple of years, you'd read ludicrous things like this. Marijuana is on a pace to match U.S. soda sales by 2030. Oh yes, and marijuana is now as common among baby boomers as it is among teens. All our major institutions, as I never tire of pointing out, that's all of them, government, uh, schools, the media, the military, they're all not working. All of them, the major ones. It's not good. 
And just so that we all stay very contemporary, in the past several weeks, it's become very clear that children in school are being encouraged by school officials to experiment on their sexual identity, and the schools are not telling their parents. In fact, several articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times made the argument that the schools had a duty not to tell their parents as they experiment with their sexual identity. This is nuts. This is where you and I live and have our being. Now, here's the question. I just stopped there, see? I was trying to be very disciplined. Drove up to the edge of the cliff, trying not to go off. Okay, but, but here's the question. Why? Why are we sliding toward a new dark ages? Why do we have this new paganism? Why is our culture losing its mind? And the Christian answer almost everywhere is this. We need to fix the family, we need to fix the schools, we need better politicians, we need better government programs, and on and on. Did you catch the real implication of what Jesus is talking about in terms of how you're to think about this? The reason the church is where it is is because the church has lost the gospel. And because the church has lost the gospel, the culture is losing its mind. In other words, all those problems I just delineated, and we could go on all morning, are because of this one thing above all. The church is failing to be the church. In other words, very succinctly, it's our fault. It's because Christians aren't being salt and light, and you get the corruption, you get the, you get the uh, lack of light, you get the, the incredible... Uh, rot and putridness and all the, all the other words that you could use. A culture losing its Christian failure and becoming more and more pagan and less and less attractive and more and more sick is failing because the church is failing to be the church. Please learn to think that way. It's our fault. It's your fault. It's my fault. We need to repent. Which brings me to my second and most direct point, and that's this. We need to hear the good news this morning, which is we're not walking in the light. I don't know how you respond to the standards Jesus is setting for the church, but last time I checked, if you use the, the standard of light and salt and really look at your own life, it's just very, very damaging. It's a real indictment. And what I want to say to you this morning is this, brothers and sisters, it, that's really, really good news because it calls for repentance. And repentance is really good news because the gospel is all about learning to turn around. Eugene Peterson has this wonderful book, Run With Horses, and he has this great story in there about his lawnmower, of all things. Now, his lawnmower malfunctioned, it's tipped on its side, and he's trying to get the blade off because it wasn't sharp enough. And so he takes his biggest wrench, he attaches it to the nut, he can't budge it. He got a four-foot length of pipe, he slipped it over the wrench to give leverage, he leaned on that, still unsuccessfully. Then he takes a large rock and bangs on the pipe. Meanwhile, all this is making so much noise, his, by the time he's finished with all these goofy exercises, his neighbor's kind of looking over like, hey, can I say a word? <laughs> so... By this time, the neighbor looks at him, and he, he sort of looks invitingly over, so the neighbor walks over to him, and he says, I used to have a lawnmower like that, and if I remember correctly, the threads on the bolt actually go the other way that you've been turning the whole time. And so Peterson sort of looks, he thinks, and he reverses all of his exertions, and the nut turned easily. Now, here, here's, here's the theologian, you ready? I was so glad to find out I was wrong. Did you get that? I was so glad to find out I was wrong. I was saved from frustration and failure. 
I would never have gotten the job done no matter how hard I tried doing it my way. To be told we are wrong is sometimes an embarrassment, it's sometimes a humiliation, but there's also many times when it's a relief and it's really good news. So I want you to hear the good news, brothers and sisters. We are not going to be salt and light based on our own strength. We're going to be stuck there with Peterson and his lawnmower turning the nut the wrong way. But the good news of the gospel is if we own up to the fact that we're not salt and light and we can't be salt and light without the help of God and his Holy Spirit, we can get there. So now I'm back to my original question. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Who are the church? Salt and light for the world. Don't you ever forget it. In Jesus' name, amen.